Hello, welcome to episode 27 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and this episode we cover all things food from nuts to soup. It's time for another in between episode of the Foodcast, and since that means I fly solo without the help of a guest to keep it interesting, I'm going to shut up for now and go straight into the show. It's all driven by listener questions. In his never-ending quest to troll and see how long I'll bloviate about nutrition topics, my brother Glenn posted a link on my personal Facebook page, because he also knows it annoys the living f*** out of me to put it on my personal page instead of on the Karma Sense Wellness page where it can help others. But back to the link. It's from a site called Cure Joy, and it claims you should soak your nuts before eating. Now, I tried soaking my nuts, and other than causing the famous Seinfeld shrinkage effect, I failed to see any connection between my nuts and what I eat. Maybe I should use warmer water next time. But seriously, this website claims the following, quote, Soaking helps to get rid of phytic acid and neutralizing enzyme inhibitors, enabling easy digestion and elevating absorption of vitamins and other nutrients in the nuts. The peels are more easily removable, once you soak nuts in hot water. Adding a little salt while soaking will help neutralize the enzymes. It also helps remove dust residue and tannins. The water residue from the soaked nuts must not be reused for cooking as they might contain harmful substances." Unquote. It then goes on to tell you how long you should soak your nuts depending on their type. These range from a peak of 12 hours for almonds down to four hours for macadamia nuts. Glenn's request in all this was for some clarity and comment. So here goes. First of all, it's never a bad idea with these types of claims to do a quick scan of the website they come from and assess how trustworthy it is. I do that with three tests. First, there's the extreme hyperbole test. Does the article make strong and absolute claims like that eating some food will give you cancer or will give you abs or will counteract the shrinkage caused by soaking your nuts in cold water? The CureJoy claims are strong, but they're tempered with lots of hedge words like enables easy digestion, helps to neutralize, or might contain dangerous substances. CureJoy gets a pass on the extreme hyperbole test. Test two is egregious misspelling and grammar errors. This one is tied to a matter of personal choice. Anyone who reads the Karma Sense Wellness blog knows that I must have some tolerance for language abuse, but I do have an upper limit, and that limit is somewhere between the number of errors on karmasensewellness.com and the number of errors on Glenn's blog, drivenforward.com. To be fair to Glenn, he wears his errors as a badge of honor, and it is more excusable with his content since it's more tied to frilly social science as opposed to the rigor required by real science. On the sample link Glenn sent from CureJoy, blatant language errors were minimized. Yeah, I know, passive voice. And while there's plenty of tense mixing, the worst I can accuse them of is awkward and overly complex phrasing. Soaking helps to get rid of phytic acid and neutralizing enzyme inhibitors, enabling easy digestion and elevating absorption of vitamins and other nutrients in the nuts. Indeed. The third and final test is the over-the-top advertising test. 
Pages with no ads get more credence than pages with mainstream advertisers, like Geico, for instance. If you want to save 15% or more on car insurance, you switch to Geico. The way to fail this is to have ridiculous clickbait ads like Seven Signs of Vaginal Discharge You Did Not Know. Hmm, I wonder if soaking would help. Or Easy Trick Erases Your Eye Bags and Wrinkles. Or Drug companies don't want you to know about this cure for diabetes. Diabetes. All of which appeared on the CureJoy site. So they get a failure on this one, but overall the article only fails one of the three tests, so we may as well continue with the actual content. But to do that, first I have to do that whole mansplaining thing. What is phytic acid? In the world of things in your food to be scared about, Phytic acid is an up-and-comer. To the food paranoid, phytic acid is almost as scary as gluten. Some people call phytic acid an anti-nutrient because, as the article claims, it does inhibit absorption of certain nutrients. You'll find phytic acid or phytates in plant seeds, and since nuts, grains, legumes, and of course seeds are often, but not always seeds, they contain phytates in various degrees. Also note that when you consume many vegetables and fruits, you're eating the seeds. Soaking seeds initiates the sprouting process, which degrades the phytates, and that's the rationale behind CureJoy's assertion. If you've ever heard of Ezekiel bread, its health claims are all based on the initial soaking and sprouting of the grains before baking the bread. But is phytic acid really something to worry about? It does impair absorption of iron and zinc, and to a lesser extent calcium but it only has that effect during the current meal. So for example, if you eat a handful of nuts for snack and then have a balanced meal of protein, vegetables, and healthy carbohydrates a couple hours later, the phytates won't impact the nutrient absorption from that meal. On the other hand, phytates have benefits. They're antioxidants, and studies show they have a protective effect against kidney stones and cancer. And what about those other scary sounding things that go away when you soak? enzyme inhibitors and tannins. It's pretty much the same deal as phytates. And dust? Yeah, soaking gets rid of dust, but a little dust never hurt anyone. Think about that dish of unwrapped hard candy at grandma's house. She lived to a ripe old age. There's no real harm in soaking your nuts before eating them. But if soaking, as recommended by CureJoy, is gonna be a killjoy, and it stops you from eating nuts altogether, Ignore their advice. As long as your diet is otherwise balanced and you don't have a flat-out nut allergy, there's nothing to worry about from phytates. As the kids like to say, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. If you find you have digestive issues when eating nuts, first of all, I'm really sorry. Second, you may try soaking them first and see if that helps. You could also try raw nuts. And a third option is to skip the mixed nuts and eat different varieties in isolation and see if you do better with them than you would if you had mixed nuts. And so, Glenn, this is how I respond to your troll. If you really want to know the answer, you're just going to have to listen to this episode of the Foodcast and pay the troll toll. Gotta pay the troll toll. If you want to get into that boy's hole, you gotta pay the troll toll to get in. You want the baby boy's hole, you gotta pay the troll toll. You gotta pay the troll toll to get in. Now, it's probably not fair to diss Glenn because he's in the fakey social sciences. It won't stop me, but it's not fair. 
Nutrition is really at the intersection of social and hard science. Because while we may be able to prove a physiological cause for why eating, say, artificially sweetened foods causes people to consume more calories throughout the day, and in fact we really can't prove that, behavioral studies do show that this is the case. So there's no physical cause, but people just do it when they're not otherwise thinking about what they're going to eat. But we have control over our own behavior. And asserting that control is one of the applications for mindfulness, as we discussed in episode 26 of the Foodcast, Shake It Up, Break It Down. Hearkening back to that episode, Dr. Nixon regaled us with her own experience eating bad popcorn at a Washington Capitals hockey game. By the way, if you're like me and you think hockey is a fake sport, I hope you'll expend your limited hockey rooting energy towards the Capitals. Every goal they score in 2017 is another $100 donation to Alice's Kids from Burke and Herbert Bank. But, as a reminder, here's what Dr. Nixon said about Bad Capitals Popcorn. And I had this urge for popcorn. So he gets me this bag of popcorn, and if you've ever been to a Caps game, the the popcorn bags are are super-sized. And I start eating, and I really, I can't stop. And this isn't the good GMO-free popcorn. A little bit of butter, but lots of salt. So I'm eating this, and I'm saying, this is so good. I really want to eat it. The game's so good. I'm stuffing my face. And I just got carried away with being real glutton about it. Uh, And quite truthful, I'm human like we all are, and eating all this popcorn. And I was halfway through this giant super-duper bag, and I said, what am I doing? Have I lost my mind? This has a lot of salt. If you have Meniere's disease, you're not supposed to have high salt all over me. I mean, it's, you know, dropping down into my lap. It's all over the floor. You know, I've, the person I've, sitting in front of you. The person, yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? It turns out there's a study that perfectly explains what Dr. Nixon was doing with their giant portion of mediocre popcorn. Researchers gave 158 moviegoers either a medium or a large tub of popcorn. The medium popcorn was 4.2 ounces or 120 grams, while the large was 8.4 ounces, 240 grams. The experiment had a second variable, the age of the popcorn. Some of the popcorn was fresh, other batches were two weeks old. The study authors split people in one of four groups, one getting a medium fresh tub, another getting a medium stale tub, one getting a large fresh, and the other getting a large stale. The researchers asked their subjects to describe the popcorn after the movie, and they weighed how much popcorn was left in the containers. As expected, The stale popcorn was described with such remarks as stale and terrible. The moviegoers served stale popcorn in big buckets ended up eating 34% more than those given the same stale popcorn in medium-sized buckets. Fresh popcorn in large buckets resulted in people eating 45% more than those given fresh popcorn in medium-sized buckets, so they ate a little bit more. When the moviegoers were asked if they thought they ate more because of the size of the container, Most said they would have eaten the same amount if given a medium container. In other words, they had no idea that they ate more because they had a bigger portion. This is a behavioral study. It's not based on any physical drive to eat more. And this study is what nutrition experts, including me, have been using to preach the gospel of using smaller dish sizes to control portions. This study has been influencing us ever since it was published over 10 years ago. There's one problem. The data was probably fudged, and this isn't the only example or even the worst example of fudged data from the highly respected source. Brian Wansink is the Professor Emeritus of the Food and Brand Lab at the Cornell University. Go Big Red! 
He's the respected author of one of the classics of the mindful eating movement called Mindless Eating. Recently, Brian got himself in a pickle. The short story is that he published a blog post extolling the persistence of one of his grad students while suddenly admitting that the student's task was to wrestle an orphan data set into submission. The data was the result of a failed experiment performed by Wansink's lab. Since the data didn't prove the experiment's intended hypothesis, he asked the student to find some other hypothesis it does support, and the student found several that resulted in five published papers. That's a big deal for a grad student to have five published papers. The problem is that reverse engineering data is a big bozo no-no. Data nerds far and wide started to scrutinize the grad student's paper as soon as they heard about this, and they looked at the whole catalog of Wansink's research and found hundreds of anomalies. Here's an oversimplified example of the type of mistakes I'm talking about. Let's say you did a poll and asked people if they thought Star Wars was better than Star Trek. A yes answer scored one point, and as you'd expect, a no answer was a big zero. If you only asked two people and calculated the average result, the only possible answers would be zero, both people being wrong, one, both people being right, or 0.5, one's right, one's wrong. Wansink's experiments would have an answer of 0.8, a mathematical impossibility. One of these data jockeys took a look at the popcorn study, and sure enough, he found an error of this type. And so, the conclusion from the bad popcorn experiment isn't supported by the data. That doesn't mean the phenomenon the experiment tried to prove doesn't exist, it just means this experiment doesn't prove it. But let's say the data did support the experiment without Wansink and crew forcing the data into a go-go plot of submission hold. Behavioral research studies our tendency to respond to a stimulus in a certain way. It doesn't study what you as an individual will and can do. You weren't a participant in this experiment. You're not in. And being a mindful eater helps you overcome the tendency of groupthink by any set of N. It's what stopped Dr. Nixon from eating a giant bag of mediocre popcorn. It's what stops me from eating an entire tub of Ben and Jerry's Chubby Hubby in one sitting. It's what helps you get in control of whatever habits you want to manage. There are a lot of reasons to be wary of behavioral studies. One thing you shouldn't have to be concerned about is the validity of the data. The peer review and editing process should have caught that. This is not the first time I've whined about the problems with scientific research, so I won't do it here. There's no doubt that these studies are interesting for some set of people, and if you're one of us, we'll make her one of us, 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 but don't have the skills or patience to analyze the validity of the data, there are two things you can do instead. You can see if the study is based on an individual experiment or a group of experiments, such as meta-analyses, or attempts by others to duplicate the experiments and see if the new attempt replicates the results. If the conclusions of those efforts are similar, you can have pretty high confidence in the original study. The second option is just trust your own bullcrap detector. And if either of those don't work, you know you can always ask me. Just don't ask me on my personal Facebook page. The whole concept of hunger, or whatever you want to call that urge to keep eating the popcorn, is just so hard to grasp. Mantra number one of the Karma Sense Eating Plan asks you to eat slowly and stop before you're full. Based on reader feedback, that's both the most popular habit people try to adopt 
and the most difficult. It's another thing Suzanne and I discussed in the prior episode. Yeah, and how do you then tell people to recognize how they're half full or three quarters full? It's a great question, and it's because each people experience and, and feel these things in different ways. So it's, there's really no way to project the strategy that I might use or you might use onto someone else. So it's really establishing some kind of relative measuring stick. Philosophers and other people who end up working at Starbucks have a name for concepts like hunger. Hunger is a qualia. Qualias are individual instances of subjective, conscious experience. Examples include hunger, pain, and many things you perceive through your senses. Qualias generally can't be communicated or comprehended by any other means but direct experience. So you and I can taste the same beer, We might even be able to agree that it tastes hoppy, but the hoppiness we're experiencing is very likely different. For any number of reasons, people try to create a vocabulary that at a minimum tries to put qualias in perspective. In hospitals, you'll often see posters with one to 10 scales or emojis with various facial expressions, the intention of which is to help patients communicate their level of pain to the caregiver. In many respects, hunger is one of the most ineffable of qualias. Look at some examples. When you and a loved one are watching a beautiful sunset, your perception of color is different. But unless one of you is colorblind, you can probably agree that you see reds and oranges and yellows. The experience is now shared. With a concept like pain, it becomes harder, but there's still a decent vocabulary around it. Sharp versus dull, throbbing versus steady. You can describe the location, And while pain can be psychosomatic, you rarely confuse pain with some other sensory experience. But what about hunger? People feel it in their brains, mouths, and stomachs. You might start feeling hungry when your stomach starts growling. I might feel it when my brain gets foggy. We each might feel it differently each time. And many people think they're hungry when that's not exactly what they're feeling. They might be bored, stressed, tired, thirsty, or something else. And that's what makes the concept of stop before you're full so hard. Most qualias have the quality of being something you comprehend perfectly, but can't be supported by interpersonal communication. Hunger is a qualia that even you have difficulty comprehending. It can't be supported by intrapersonal communication. The only other thing I can think of that comes remotely close are the concepts of love and hate. And so a question I commonly get is how do I know when I'm hungry, or full, or 80% full? Trying to be the best coach I can be, I always attempt to evoke the expertise of my client to resolve that question. When at an impasse, I ask permission to help. It can be an annoying process to some, but dictating a solution doesn't work so well either. The best way I know to judge hunger is to use a hunger scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being, I must eat now, and 10 being, I already feel sick, and even a sip of water will cause me to explode. And some people can work just with that. Others find success by either making a mental note or an actual note on paper or in a digital file of where they sit in the scale throughout the day, just prior to meals, at a break during the meal, immediately after the meal, and maybe every hour or so once the meal is done. After a few days of practice and reviewing the notes and observations, people can get the hang of it. It does take patience, though. A pro tip for people who really want to nail this concept is to try fasting. It's not for everyone, but deciding to delay or skip meals 
and becoming comfortable with the discomfort is the most enlightening process I know. So now you know. This is why my brother Glenn does this to me. He asks about soaking nuts, and I tell you about the problems with doing research in the social sciences, how to dissect a website full of health claims, some esoteric concepts in philosophy, some sound clips from the 1932 movie Freaks, and the musical extravaganza The Nightman Cometh, and, oh yeah, that soaking nuts is probably a waste of time. But there's no harm. Other than soggy nuts. And then, there's Bruce. I went to camp with Bruce. We're now personal friends on Facebook, and he's also a follower of the Karma Sense Wellness Facebook page. Some of you may have heard this story before. Bruce was so what some people would call insubordinate when he worked at camp, he got fired before the first camper even showed up. And since he loved camp, and maybe because he feared a summer at home with his parents, rather than going home, Bruce spent the summer in the woods adjacent to camp where he was fed via the largesse of those of us who worked in the kitchen. Even a guy that unconventional knows enough to post food and health-related questions on the KarmaSense Wellness Facebook page and not on my personal page. Bruce is currently working his way through Southeast Asia, where bug-eating is a thing, a la Foodcast episode number 16. In fact, Bruce is the only other person I interact with on a regular basis who I would call fly-curious. Recently, Bruce came across an article on CNN.com about cockroach milk. Yeah, I know, CNN, but this one wasn't fake news. Apparently, scientists found that cockroach milk is a rich source of complete protein, fat, and carbohydrates that shows potential for feeding the world. And anyone who spent time at my camp's mess hall knows that roaches are an easily renewable resource. Bruce wanted to get a karma sense perspective on cockroach milk, so here's the deal. Actually, being the hepcat that I am, I shared an article about this discovery in the summer of 2016, a couple weeks after the scientists who discovered cockroach milk released their findings to the world. Most cockroaches succumb to the peer pressure from other insects in the bug kingdom and produce offspring by laying eggs. And like most eggs, all the nutrition a little cockroach chick needs is self-contained inside the egg. One species of roach, however, the Pacific beetle cockroach, is viviparous. I don't know what viviparous means, but the other thing they do is they give live birth. In effect, the Pacific beetle cockroach is to insects what duck-billed platypuses, or is it platypi? Either way, what duck-billed platypi are to mammals. The benefits of cockroach milk are threefold. First, it's very nutritionally dense. It has four times as much nutrition by volume as does cow's milk. Second, it's calorically dense. Thanks to the energy it contains, Pacific beetle roaches grow faster and larger than roaches of most other species. So we have that going for us, which is nice. Finally, the mechanics of cockroach milk works in a way so all that nutrition is time-released, which means you get more nutrition per feeding. Now, you may ask, how does one milk a cockroach? It's a lot like milking a cat. And uh, then took the saucer and fed it to Geppetto. That's what I named him, Geppetto. I, I, I had no idea you could milk a cat. Oh yeah, you can milk anything with nipples. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? But seriously, Mama Roach secretes the milk into Baby Roach's tummy when Baby Roach is still just a gleam in Mama's 4,000 compound eyes. 
the milk then crystallizes, and then those crystals dissolve over time after the roach is born. For the experiments underway, scientists extract the roach milk from the gut of the roach embryos. This is not a very efficient process. Once again, almost literally, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. The folks doing the research believe that in the future, they'll bypass the whole factory dairy farm for a roach model and go directly into bioengineering roach milk. People for the ethical treatment of animals will be glad to know that no roaches will be harmed in that process. And that's right, 20 years from now, we'll be downing GMO cockroach milk for nutrition. What could possibly go wrong? Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., Congress is bypassing those pesky minor issues like health care, fixing the nation's infrastructure, and tax reform, and they're focusing on what really matters to the people. Wisconsin Representative Tammy Baldwin, with the backing of the National Milk Producers Federation, one of them their trade associations we talked about in episode 25, Health Theater, she introduced this lyrically named law, the Defending Against imitations, and replacements of yogurt, milk, and cheese to promote regular intake of Dairy Every Day Act, something that's also known by the less oxygen-consuming name, the Dairy Pride Act. This law compels the Food and Drug Administration to enforce the legal definition of milk and cream as the lacteal secretion obtained by the milking of one or more healthy hooved animals. The Dairy Pride Act's targets are those alternative milks, made of soybean and almonds and a different kind of roach, hemp seeds. None of which, last I checked, are hoofed. So what they're basically trying to do is stop you from being confused into thinking that almond milk may actually come from a cow. This definition also will affect the secretions from the lowly roach. So don't ever expect it to be marketed as roach milk. It'll have some other appealing name, but this law also excludes the milk from Greg Fokker's kitten and his future father-in-law because they don't have hooves either, even though they do have nipples. When chicken's fried is light, it's crispy every bite. It's just as crispy as crispy can be. The chicken's got a certain personality. Wessonality means crisp. That crispy, non-greasy taste you get when you fry chicken with Wesson oil. Look, that's crisp. That's Wessonality. The chicken's got a crispy Wessonality. <sighs> Gone are the days of America's favorite TV mom making indisputable claims about corn oil. I mean, I think we can all agree. Wesson oil does give fried chicken Wessonality. You know, that je ne sais quoi, which I believe is French for qualia. But now, corn oil commercials sound more like this. Most of the time, it's easy to know which option is better. Other times, not so much. So it's good to know that Mazzola corn oil has four times more cholesterol-blocking plant sterols than olive oil. And a recent study found that it can help lower cholesterol two times more. Take care of those you love and cook deliciously. Mazzola makes it better. Listener Jennifer asked me to comment on this commercial. She did it through email, of all things. Jennifer, I have a few problems with it. One, I don't know whose that is doing the talking. I watched the commercial, and I saw that woman playing mom, going about her normal mom activities, shopping, 
taking kids to soccer and evaluating the stochastic processes that drive derivative markets, but they never show her face. How are we supposed to know if she's as trustworthy a spokeswoman as Mrs. Brady, a woman who outsources most of her cooking, if we can't tell if she's a lovely lady? Just saying. The other problem is that the claim smacks in the face of everything I know about fat. Even worse, it may mean I have to rewrite the mantra number five chapter of the Karma Sense Eating Plan, Eat Good Fats Daily, and Balance a Variety of Good Fats. Because in the scheme of things, corn oil is more of an okay fat than a good fat. So I looked for the study that allowed Mazzola to make this claim and poured through it. It's called Corn Oil Intake Favorably Impacts Lipoprotein Cholesterol, Apolipoprotein, and Lipoprotein Particle Levels Compared with Extra Virgin Olive Oil. That's a title so musical, Wisconsin Representative Tammy Baldwin will probably try and make it a law. In that study that checks all the boxes of decent study design, Subjects were fed controlled diets with foods cooked in a fixed amount of either corn oil or extra virgin olive oil. While subjects ate foods cooked in corn oil, they saw a 9% reduction in bad cholesterol levels compared to subjects who ate foods cooked in olive oil. The latter group saw 2% reductions. And good HDL cholesterol levels went up for both, but the amounts were about the same. So the claims in the commercial are valid. And that's because, as the commercial states, corn oil has more phytosterols than olive oil, and phytosterols compete for the same cellular real estate as cholesterol in foods, and so they block dietary cholesterol absorption. Cool beans. If the only thing in the world you have to worry about is blood cholesterol levels, then A, chug all the corn oil you want, and B, you're living in a fantasy world. Corn oil isn't really that groovy. Polyunsaturated fats like corn oil are not terribly shelf-stable. They're vulnerable to high heat, like the kind you would need to fill your fried chicken with wessonality. But even when used in cooler settings, corn oil goes rancid quickly. Monounsaturated fats like those found in olive oil are more stable at both room temperature and heated settings. Secondly, corn oil is mostly an omega-6 polyunsaturated fat. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but your body needs a decent balance of omega-6 and omega-3 polyunsaturated fats, and I can almost guarantee that you don't get nearly as much omega-3s available in fish and some seeds as you do omega-6s available in hundreds of plant foods, meats, and Oreo flavors. Omega-6 polyunsaturated fats are inflammatory. Again, nothing wrong with that. We all need to be inflamed every once in a while. But without the balanced offset of omega-3s, you're inflamed all the time. Your body hates that, and it takes it out on you in the form of heart disease, cancer, and dare I say it, diabetes. diabetes. Jennifer, what if I told you there was a cooking oil with almost as many polysterols as corn oil without the high levels of problematic omega-6 polyunsaturated fats? How much would you pay for something like that? 328, 542? Well, there is, and it's Canada's own canola oil, a relatively inexpensive, neutral tasting oil that, like olive oil, is mostly monounsaturated fat and with only 10% fewer polysterols than corn oil. But even canola oil has a few gotchas. One, if you're concerned about GMOs or non organic farming practices, 
Canola oil that isn't labeled GMO-free and organic probably isn't. 2. Most oil manufacturers process the oil with chemical solvents or with high heat, and that destabilizes the oil and makes it generally grumpy. Aim for cold, expeller-pressed oils. It'll say so clearly on the label. And the third problem with canola oil is Canada. Finally, keep using that olive oil. It tastes great, it's good for cooking, and it has polyphenols. Those are phytonutrients that help the heart in strange and mysterious ways. I intend to do a whole episode on fat based on a question that came from Crashman, and for now it doesn't look like I need to update the KarmaSense eating plan. So thank you for the question, Jennifer. And finally, Ed asks, Everywhere I go, there's bone broth. Panera sells it in their restaurants. I see boxes of it at the supermarket. And I've seen some bone broth products on the internets that cost over 50 bucks. Is there anything to it? Or is it just soup? Great question, Ed. Bone broth isn't soup. And another thing bone broth isn't is broth. Because you make broth by simmering vegetables and meat on or off the bone, and with some bones too. Stock, however, may have a small amount of vegetables, a little meat, but it's mostly pure bone and connective tissue. Broth is usually thinner than stock because the water content of the vegetables and the meat dilute the liquid. Since stock has more bones than other solid ingredients, it has a higher concentration of collagen and that makes it thicker. Soup is a composed dish that may include broth or stock, but doesn't have to. Bone broth is really stock. Semantics aside, I suppose you want to know if there's any reason we should be paying premium prices for new bone broth products. The short answer is no. But you know I never settle for the short answer. Bone broth's rising popularity is due to some incredible health claims. It allegedly helps you lose weight, improves your complexion, and delays skeletal creakiness. These claims do in fact have some credibility. The process of slow cooking bones and connective tissues transfers the nutrition locked into these normally inedible animal scraps into the liquid base. The bones may contain calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, and sodium. The bone marrow often contains vitamins A and K, omega-3, and omega-6 fatty acids, a healthful saturated fat called conjugated linoleic acid, or CLA, as well as iron, selenium, and zinc. And the connective tissue contains glucosamine and chondroitin. And there's evidence that these substances relieve arthritis and joint pain. Research supports the benefits of all these nutrients in isolation and as components in other food. The quantity of any of these nutrients in a batch of bone broth is highly variable and depends on the types of bones used, the environment in which the animal was raised, cooking time, and whatever else found its way into the stock pot. That being said, benefits of those nutrients include the reduction of inflammation, improved joint and skeletal health, and better sleep. But it's important to note there isn't any research to date on bone broth's specific impact on these conditions. Given the increasing popularity, however, I expect that to change upon the formation of a National Bone Broth Association, who can then fund research, lobby Wisconsin Representative Tammy Baldwin, and hand out backscratcher tchotchkes at the Bone Broth National Convention in Orlando next year. One great thing about bone broth is that it's low in calories, and since it's mostly water, it fills the tummet. So it can aid weight loss, but it's only as good as the ingredients it contains. 
or doesn't contain as the case may be. Finally, Ed, bone broth isn't that hard to make at home. You can use leftover bones from dinner or talk to your friendly neighborhood butcher. Put your bones, and I don't literally mean your bones, I mean the bones you had from dinner or from the butcher. Put the bones in a pot, and for every pound or half kilo that you have, add half a gallon or two liters of water, a tablespoon of vinegar. Go ahead, use apple cider vinegar if it makes you feel extra frisky. Half an onion and or two cloves of garlic if you so desire, and then bring it to a boil. If you want, once it boils, add a little salt and pepper, but only about a half a teaspoon or two and a half grams. Reduce the heat to simmer and let it go for four to 24 hours. The longer it goes, the more concentrated the flavor and nutrition. Let it cool, strain out the solid shit, and you can now store it in the fridge for about a week or the freezer for about a month. Heat up what you want when you want it and add some healthy stuff into it. You can also do this whole procedure with a slow cooker and basically ignore it while it's cooking. You're wasting your money if you're not doing this with that $5 rotisserie chicken from Costco. It may not seem like a lot of money you're wasting, but considering the street value these days is straight bone broth, it's more of an opportunity cost than a straight expense. You demand, Ed. And so ends another episode of The Foodcast. I want to thank everyone for sending in those questions, especially those of you who can follow basic internet etiquette. Keep those cards and letters coming. Better yet, save the stamp and hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, email, karmasensewellness.com, or (laughs) Google+. I've got a bunch of great guest interviews in the can, and we'll pull one of those out for next week. If you enjoy the Foodcast, please like, subscribe, share, and review on iTunes. It doesn't take that much time, and it really helps me out. I'm also interested in hearing whether you like shows with guests or me flying solo better. I look at the listener statistics and it's really tough for me to tell. Anyway, until next time, remember what your old friend Tammy Baldwin always says. I'm Tammy Baldwin. I approve this message.